Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there! Okay, I think we'll probably be a little subdued for those those of you who are long-term fans. Yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago, we recorded an episode of uh, Tech Stuff because of... Um, a seismic event in Christchurch, New Zealand that yes. uh, did a lot of damage, but um, hadn't uh, resulted in a lot of human costs. Right. Uh, since then, of course, um, you know we've had the earthquake in Japan, yes. 9.0 earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, if you remember in the seismology podcast, each uh, each number in the Richter scale is ten times greater in intensity than the previous number. So a, a two is ten times more intense than a one. So nine is an incredibly intense earthquake. Uh, what's what's interesting about that too? Just as a note, uh, I understand that 
that was actually an aftershock of a 6.2, I believe, mm-hmm. magnitude earthquake. It was in the sixes. Yeah, and it, um, can, it can sound kind of unusual to some of us uh, that an aftershock would actually be more powerful than the initial earthquake. But you just have to remember those those plates that we talked about in the seismology podcast are the pressure is is incredible. There's nothing else like it on Earth, really. No. Where uh, and if if uh, those pl- plates slip against each other, then you you can get a pretty massive earthquake or mm-hmm. an aftershock. Mm-hmm. So. Um... Of course, we, we touched on how uh, earthquakes are measured, the different devices that have been used to measure them in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, in Japan, there were the earthquakes and aftershocks and the tsunami that followed, uh, resulting in a lot of property damage and loss of life. We're still not sure at this point how many people are gone. No, uh, it's a tragedy that is definitely on a, on a, a huge scale. We just don't know the extent of that yet. Mm -hmm. And um, although no one has really asked uh, about this yet, we're kind of thinking that maybe people would want to know about the other major news event that has gone along with that, which was the, uh, uh, the nuclear power plant that has suffered uh, catastrophic failure as as the result of the earthquake. Um, And we thought it might be interesting to talk about how nuclear power plants work. Um, and then we'll we'll go into exactly what the problem is in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Well, this uh, frankly, this could be a marathon episode. We could talk about nuclear power plants for hours because they are very involved. So we decided to stick primarily to the general type of nuclear power plant being used right. uh, in question, but also some of the others that have had uh, major uh, problems in the past, notably the Chernobyl. Uh, reactor mm-hmm. and the one in Three Mile Island in, in the United States. Yes. So let's talk first about what a nuclear reactor is and how it generates power. Uh, of course, uh, it's using a nuclear process, right? It's using decay, really. It's We're talking mm-hmm. about controlling the decay of of uh, uranium. Mm-hmm. Really, it's, it, uh, when you compare it to a coal power plant... Um, and you and you take the very very basics together. This type of nuclear power plant is almost exactly the same type. You're using a nuclear reaction to generate heat, as you would for a coal-fired power right, plant. Right, exactly. You would you would burn coal to generate heat in a coal plant. Mm-hmm. So yeah, same thing. You're trying to use heat to generate electricity. Yeah, you you use that to to generate steam. Mm-hmm. The steam turns a turbine and a generator. Which generates electricity. Right. It's it's the nuclear reaction that makes it so very different uh, from the coal plants. Though. Yeah. And you might ask, well, why would you want to use nuclear power in the first place? Well, there's several reasons. One is that, but unlike coal, it doesn't produce uh, greenhouse gases. That's right. Right. So when you burn coal, you're going to generate greenhouse gases and essentially carbon dioxide being chief among them, mm-hmm. and uh, and that can contribute to lots of environmental problems. So yes. In some ways, nuclear power, at least from a, a greenhouse gas perspective, is greener than coal technology. Right. Uh, also, you don't need as much fuel to generate power as you would with coal. True. It's it's actually an incredible scale. You could be talking about you know a few pounds of uranium versus tons and tons and tons of coal. Yes, it wasn't that long ago that the uh, that those of us in the United States were talking about the coal mine. Uh, the coal miners who were trapped in West Virginia, 
Um, and of course, people start talking about the pros and cons of coal. Now, of course, we're talking about the pros and cons of, of nuclear energy. Right. Um, but yes, it, it requires far less uh, um, raw material to generate the nuclear reaction as it would for uh, the coal-fired power plants. Uh, now, so you're, you're talking about material where you don't need as much. You, you mm-hmm. aren't generating greenhouse gases. Um, and you can create an, an intense amount of heat uh, very pretty simply in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a lot of concerns around nuclear power as well. For one, I mean, we're talking about radioactive material and radioactive material that is harmful to humans. Yes. It's not just, uh, you know, lots of things radiate energy. Sure. And not all of that energy is harmful. Yes. Just the other night I was watching uh, the CBS News uh, report on radioactivity. And a lot of people in the United States have been concerned that, first of all, the uh, governments of Japan and the United States aren't being truthful with the amount of radiation being leaked into the uh, atmosphere as a result of the explosions that took place at the plant in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were uh, one of the things that I think was interesting was they took a Geiger counter mm-hmm. around to several different they were basically walking around New York City with a Geiger counter, and they went to the middle of the park and turned it on, and it was picking up readings of radioactivity. And they walked over to Granite, a granite uh, monument, as a matter of fact, and uh, and and took the Geiger counter. And a Geiger counter, by the way, is a, a device that measures radioactivity. Yes. Uh, you hear clicking sounds, and it has a, a, a needle, one of the... Uh, I think of it as an old style, but really, I guess it's not, uh, with the needle, and it shows you roughly how much uh, radioactivity is being generated. And granite is naturally radioactive, and I didn't know that. Now, of course, uh, you can't take just anything um, and throw it in a nuclear reactor and have it react. You have to use a very special um, type of material because to generate a nuclear reaction, um, you're splitting an atom. Yes. Uh, you use a, a stray neutron right. to uh, break apart the nucleus of another atom. And, and some some elements are more likely to be are, – are easier to do that with than others. You need something that's called fissile if you're using a, a fission reaction as the one – as these reactors do. Yeah. Fusion power right now is kind of beyond us as far as uh, – it takes more energy to create a fusion reaction mm-hmm. than we get back out of it. But there is a lot of hope that in the future, fusion will become the, the power source for nuclear facilities. Uh, the sun generates energy through fusion, mm-hmm. not fission. That's right. So, uh, yeah, we haven't we haven't gotten there yet, but there are a lot of very, very smart people working on ways to create fusion power plants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I did uh, quite a bit of research on on these things from uh, Britannica. I like to, to use that, of course, as one of my sources. Um, and uranium-235, according to Britannica, is the only naturally occurring fissile material that's in a, a ready state to be to be split apart this way. Yeah. Um, there are other uh, different kinds of materials. Uh, we're, we're talking about the nucleides. Um, somebody will probably correct my pronunciation. I think that's right. Um, but those, some of them, basically, as long as the atoms are in an excited state, uh, they can be, um, when they're hit with a slow-moving neutron, you can, you can break them apart. Uranium-235, 233, Plutonium-239 and 241. Yeah. Um, yeah, Plutonium-239 you actually create with uh, ur- Uranium-238 and then you bombard it with neutrons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, 
materials that are fertile uh, can be that if you are uh, different kinds of materials that if you add an extra neutron, you can they can become fissile. Uh, those are thorium two thirty two, uranium two thirty eight, and plutonium two forty. Yeah. Um, so these are very complex atoms. Yes. And, and, and heavy atoms. And very heavy atoms. And um, they are are the kinds of materials required to be used in a in a core of a nuclear reactor. And uranium two thirty five will break apart naturally. It decays over time. But yes. But that's not the you know you want to have a controlled. And uh, a controlled reaction in order to be able to generate power, and you want mm-hmm. to be able to do it at uh, a good time scale because mm-hmm. we're not we don't have thousands of years to generate electricity. Mm-hmm. So with uranium two thirty five, you actually would bombard it with neutrons in order to uh, to speed up that reaction. Now what that will do is it the the atom splits apart. It generates a lot of energy in the form of heat and uh, radiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the radiation comes in the forms of gamma radiation. Yes. Beta radiation and alpha radiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so gamma radiation is a form of electromagnetic radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there are two major kinds of radiation. Electromagnetic radiation, which is some form of light. Uh, it's, it's photon radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, that may not be visible light, uh, but it is. it, it falls under the, the photon radiation. Then you have particulate radiation, mm-hmm. which is when you're talking about a, an unstable uh atom particle uh, shoots off, essentially, from the the atom. And uh, so with alpha radiation, uh, you, or, well, let, I'll start with beta radiation. With beta radiation, you've got uh, uh, electrons being released, mm-hmm. right? Alpha radiation, it's protons and neutrons being released. Now, protons and neutrons are much, much, much larger in comparison to electrons. Yeah. And they move slower than electrons do. So alpha radiation, you get the protons and neutrons splitting off. Uh, that's a particulate radiation that moves uh, slowly. It can actually, depending upon you know how how you're being exposed to it, your skin can sometimes block uh, alpha radiation just because your skin is thick enough where it's the the particles are not moving at a speed sufficient to be able to uh, penetrate the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, the beta radiation is different because those electrons are very tiny and they're moving really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is the sort of radiation that uh, – the p- sort of particulate radiation that can actually cause pre- pretty nasty deep tissue damage mm-hmm. if it hits you. And then, of course, gamma radiation is really, really high-energy electromagnetic radiation, and that stuff is serious business. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, gamma radiation can cause – Lots of problems, uh, in both immediate acute problems and chronic problems over time. Mm-hmm. So why would you want to use this? Well, it's because it gives off this this amount of energy, this this kind of intense energy. It's really good at converting water into steam. Mm-hmm. So if you can control this reaction uh, and generate an, the right amount of heat, you're going to generate a lot of steam that's going to move through the system and eventually turn the turbine, which is going to... Uh, provide the uh, the power to the generator. Yes. And then you, you create power for the power grid. And some countries rely very heavily on nuclear power to create, uh, to, to supplement their power grid. Mm-hmm. Countries like, like France, it's nearly 75% of their power that yes. comes from nuclear power. Uh, in the United States, it's more like 20%. Mm-hmm. It's funny because there are two, um, two different things to consider that you might not consider with some of the other uh, forms of electricity generation here. Um, atomic reactions are deal with probability, mm-hmm. um, and they deal with 
uh, chain reactions. Um, I remember watching in one of my science classes a long, long time ago an experiment that they did where they had set up – or not an experiment but an, an illustration. Mm-hmm. They had a, 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 a plexiglass or a, a clear plastic box and across the floor of it, the entire floor was covered with mousetraps, set mousetraps. Each mousetrap had two ping pong balls on top of it and everything was still. So – this is the normal state of the atoms. That's supposed to represent the normal state of the right, atoms right. inside the fuel. Um, and then there was a small hole at the top of the box. And the person said, okay, this is what happens when you add the neutron. The stray neutron is another ping pong ball mm-hmm. in this illustration. And the person dropped the ping pong ball into, into the box. And, of course, it hit one of the mousetraps, setting it off. The other two ping pong balls, representing neutrons again, uh, jumped up from the mousetrap in different directions, and each of those set off more mousetraps, and each of those set off more mousetraps. So it becomes and that's, exponential growth. Yes. Now, of course, in the nuclear fuel, uh, you know, in that particular illustration ended and very quickly within a matter of, you know, probably two or three seconds. Right. Uh, because there were, you know, 40 mousetraps or something like that inside sure, the box. Sure, sure. In nuclear fuel, this continues on. Um, but they have to control that. They have to look at the probability that a neutron will continue, uh, that there will still be stray neutrons able to generate more uh, heat energy right, right. release. Um, so when they want uh, what they call a, a, a slightly supercritical uh, level of reaction because there is that means that there is more more than one fission per neutron. So you're you're you don't want it to be a little bit. You don't want it to be. Underneath that, when it gets subcritical, that's when there are few there are, uh, fewer neutrons available to make uh, the nuclear reactions. Which means that you would actually have to pour more power into the system to to shoot more neutrons into it in order to generate power. And of course, you know the whole goal here is to make it as efficient as possible when you're generating electricity. Otherwise, uh, you're actually consuming far more power than you are able to convert into electricity. Yes. When it's one spare neutron to a reaction, that's or uh, to a nucleus of another atom, that's critical. Mm-hmm. That Literally, that is what they call critical. And, right. Uh, that's the reactive state of the, uh, the reactor core. Um, from what I understand, they do want it to be slightly supercritical, but only slightly. And so controlling the reaction is very important. And that's done in a number of different ways. Sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the way the fuel is put together, and then we sure. can talk about how that control happens. Yeah, I think that that would be excellent because that is uh, a big part of how they control the reaction. Yeah. So, so the uranium uh, is enriched with uranium-235. Right. Now, for a nuclear facility. I was going to say we should might maybe explain what that means because uranium-235 is naturally reactive, but there's only so much of U-235 found in a chunk of uranium. Right. So enriched uranium is basically they've added more uranium-235 to the uranium overall to right. make it – uh, reactive to make it more reactive so they can use it as nuclear fuel right and so for uh, you have to for for fuel for a nuclear power plant uh, you need to have uh, added enough u-235 so it's got two to three percent u-235 in the overall fuel mm-hmm. uh, now u-235 is the same element that you're going to find in uh, in nuclear weapons 
But mm-hmm. nuclear weapons require a much higher percentage of U-235, like 90% U-235 within the uranium in order for it to be weapons-grade. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty easy way to tell if someone's making weapons-grade uranium is you measure how how the percentage of U-235 in the fuel itself. If you've been following the news and you've uh, seen pieces on uh, where some countries are concerned about Iran right. enriching uranium – this is why you can enrich uranium for a nuclear power program, right? Or it can also be used in weapons, right? So if you're enriching beyond that two to three percent, then mm-hmm. that's a good indicator that you're looking at something more uh, dangerous than a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. So the what the bits of uranium are actually formed into what what is called pellets. Yes, and they're about an inch long. Mm-hmm. They're about the diameter of a dime, so you can think it's kind of like a cylinder, right? Yes. Now these pellets are stacked together to form rods. Yes, they are. They are contained within uh, a metal rod. Yes, yes. So yeah, you can think of like a there's like a, a sheath, a metal sheath, and these uranium pellets are stacked within that sheath. Mm-hmm. Now these rods are then grouped together into a collection called a bundle. Mm-hmm. And uh, if if that's all it was, if that's all you had, and then you started introducing neutrons into it, you would have no way to to modif- to moderate that at all. It mm-hmm. would just the reaction would would increase and increase until either you had spent all the fuel or you had had a meltdown. A meltdown essentially is when the fuel itself gets so hot that it melts. Yes. Um, so in order to control this, they have control rods. Mm-hmm. And control rods are made of material that are that absorbs neutrons. Yes, because as we were talking about, you know, these neutrons that that fly off and hit uh, uranium two thirty five. That's what uh, initializes this reaction. Mm-hmm. So if you have material that absorbs neutrons, it's like taking, you know, you're 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 putting the brakes on things. Yes, and the control rods tend to be you can you can insert them either all the way down where they are going to control the the reaction as much as possible, keeping in mind that there's still some decay heat that's going on here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like you immediately switch it off. It's just slowing it down to the point where uh, y- you call it a nuclear shutdown, but there's still heat. Mm-hmm. Or you can raise them all the way up and then just let the uh, you know, reaction go to full full blast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, cadmium and boron are two elements that are very good at absorbing stray neutrons. And you may have heard about boron being introduced into the Japanese uh, mm-hmm. facility along with seawater. Yes. We'll talk about that in a minute too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are those are also uh, – those are useful because they're basically fighting over uh, who gets the, the stray neutrons and that just slows everything down and helps right. keep it under control. Now, inside this nuclear reactor, you also have to have coolant – because uh, the, and actually the coolant is what heats up to go, and then usually you have a you have a coolant that then runs through another system that will heat up water, mm-hmm. and the water becomes steam, and that's what drives the turbine. Some nuclear power plants, and these are the the ones that are kind of particularly dangerous, uh, have the the coolant system also driving the turbine, which means that you have radioactive material pushing that turbine. Right. Because the 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 coolant that in, encounters the actual rods mm-hmm. is going to pick up radioactive material. It itself will become radioactive. It's going to have radioactive particles running through that coolant system. So most of these coolant systems are are self-contained. Mm-hmm. And they do not cross over into the uh the water system that drives the turbine. They yeah. just they just 
you can think of it as it runs up against the water system and the heat from the coolant system is what generates the steam in the water system. Right. Um, so, but you have to have that. If you don't have that, again, the, uh, the, the core can reach a temperature that's so high that the uranium begins to melt. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a lot of, uh, scary guesswork as to what would happen if you had a true meltdown, like a, a full on meltdown, uh, to the point where we're not really sure if the material would get so hot like the the reaction would continue to a point where it would just burn right through the reactor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's a theoretical possibility, although we haven't actually seen that happen in real life yet. Thank goodness. Yes, that's true. Well, the uh, the movie The China Syndrome, yeah, is about that, and I, I think most scientists would probably tell you that that's a bit hysterical for what might actually happen. Uh, the the, right. the premise being that the core melts down, the fuel is melting, and it melts all the way through the center of the Earth, again, from the United States to China, all the way through the uh, the Earth. Yeah, that might be a little... I, I think that's probably... I mean, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but I think, I think I would, that's a little extreme. I would definitely call that the worst-case scenario. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that it could actually go that far but yes that that is an exaggeration of what Jonathan's talking about the idea that it would melt through the reactor so the the problems that we could conceivably face with a nuclear power plant would involve something going wrong with the ability to insert or remove the control rods really to insert them because right. if because if they're stuck there all you really have is a dead nuclear power plant and yes that is terrible and that it's going to cost billions of dollars to fix but it doesn't pose an immediate threat to the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have the problem with uh, if if the water system, if the cooling system is uh, in any way compromised, then you have the chance of the nuclear reactor overheating, which unfortunately we have seen happen before. Yeah. And uh, that can cause uh, massive problems down the line. Uh, now, what happened with Japan is that uh, the the earthquake actually did not – uh, did not damage the the reactors to the point where they were inoperable. In fact, what happened was that the control rods descended as they should have in that instance to control that reaction. But again, there's decay heat. It's not like it can uh, shut it off immediately. It's just that right. the reaction's no longer continuing, right? But mm-hmm. still generating heat. Right. Um, another thing to consider with regard to the the Japanese reactor is that. Uh, there were containment devices set up. When you build a nuclear power plant like this, this light water plant, um, it is ideal to build a containment area around the reactor core. Yes, yes. Um, this is usually made with concrete, uh, very thick concrete in the case of, of the Japanese uh, plant, um, which for has, has so far as of the time we're talking right now, prevented a major release of radiation. Right. Um, The problem comes from uh, what happens with spent nuclear fuel, which to this point we haven't mentioned. Oh, that's true. Um, That's true. At some point, when the fuel becomes subcritical and it cannot continue producing uh, a nuclear reaction sufficient enough to continue the, the electrical output of the plant, um, they are going to want the, – the people running the plant are going to want to replace it with fresh fuel. Yes. Uh, this can take weeks. 
Yes. Uh, usually they do maintenance on the plant at the same time uh, because it's a good time the plant shut down. So what they'll do is they'll remove the bundle of rods and replace it with new rods of with fresh fuel. But what do you do with the old rods? That's the tricky part because the old rods are very hot and they are very, very radioactive. Yeah, it's just like it, like Chris was saying. It's kind of like, you know, it's just that they're not generating the amount of energy necessary to run the plant. But they're still generating tons of ele- of energy and not really tons. Don't write me. And um, the... They are very much dangerous to people, and here's the, the eventually they will be inert. But yes. by eventually, I'm talking like ten thousand years. Yes, we can't wait around that long. And because they're generating so much heat and so much radioactivity, they tend to corrode pretty much any container you put them in. Mm-hmm. This is one of the aside from the the potential for an accident. Uh, this is one of the things that can that uh, makes nuclear power so controversial. Is yeah. that this is the flip side of the green coin? Yes, yeah, storing the nuclear fuel, the spent nuclear fuel, is very, very difficult. Uh, nobody wants nuclear fuel in their backyard. Nope. Um, and not even the Hulk. There's not even uh, there's not a good answer for that. Storing it in caves. Is one solution. The question is whether or not people will go in there. Um, you know, a thousand years down the road is still very radioactive. Yeah. Um, you could say, well, why don't we shoot it off into space? Well, that's fine, except there's the potential for an accident. Rockets are not foolproof. Yes. So we have. And if you that. have an accident with the rocket, there's the potential that radioactive waste could be scattered across the Earth's atmosphere, and that, again, is something that no one wants to happen. So one of the first things they do when they remove the, the fuel, from what I understand, from the reactor core is they put it in a containment pool. Uh, water, as it turns out, is a natural shield against radioactivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only is it cooling the very, very hot rods uh, with the nuclear fuel inside – but it also is shield, doing some shielding against radioactivity. Well, in the Japanese plant, when the power was shut off, ironically enough, mm-hmm. uh, the water began to evaporate. Yeah, it was boiling off. And that's the problem is that there, when there's no more water surrounding the spent fuel, it wasn't the reactor cores. It was this, the spent fuel uh, and the reaction is allowed to continue. That generates hydrogen. When the yes. hydrogen is explosive. Yeah, it's, it's a process called thermolysis. It's when heat turns uh, water into hydrogen and oxygen and breaks up the, the molecules into their, into their component atoms. Mm-hmm. And you, can, you could do the same thing with electricity. That's electrolysis. Mm-hmm. So it's the same sort of thing. It's just you, you pour enough energy into a molecule and you can break those molecular bonds. And that's right. exactly what happened. Uh, hydrogen built up. But before we get to the, the hydrogen problem, I should also mention there were a lot of fail-safe uh, procedures in place at the Japanese plant. It's yes. not that the Japanese were not doing due diligence with safety. It's just that it was the perfect set of terrible situations for this to happen. And, um, and, it, and it, from what I understand, not to interrupt, I'm, sure. I apologize. Um, from what I understand, the plant was intended to survive an eight plus uh, point Richter scale earthquake. Yeah, it was the tsunami that really hit them. Because yeah. here's what happens. They lost power from the power grid. Well, the the power plant ha- and they need power to pump water through the system in right. order to keep it cool. Mm-hmm. So the the pumps run on electricity. So 
they switched to their diesel uh, generators. Right. But then the tsunami hit, and the diesel generators were not above the tsunami level, so they were flooded and could no longer work. They also had battery power, but the battery power was only meant to last, you know, uh, I think like a day, mm-hmm. because the idea was that, well, we won't be without power for longer than that, but they could not get supplemental power in place to... Uh, uh, to cover the gap between the battery power and when they could get some other form online. Yeah. And so the water stopped pumping and the temperature kept building and the hydrogen built up. Um, and hydrogen is incredibly uh, flammable. It's explosive. Yes. And there was uh, the the hydrogen collected at the top of the facility. Uh, something set it off. And there was that's what that big explosion was when we first you know and there've been a, a, a there's been other ones since then but that initial explosion people were worried that the reactor had exploded that's not what happened it was the pocket of hydrogen that had exploded mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and as uh, if you've been through a certain level of science we, of course we have some younger listeners uh, the three things that you need for a fire are uh, you know heat. Uh, a source of fuel mm-hmm. and air. Yeah. And you would certainly have that with very hot con- uh, fuel rods. Yeah. Air in the in the area and then, you know, the source of hydrogen. Yes. So um, it, it was a very dangerous situation. Now, uh, people have said, uh, you know, this is going to be another Chernobyl. But Chernobyl was a different situation. They right. did not have any containment in place or what they did have some containment, but it was not – Designed to prevent the kind of release that uh, that occurred. Yeah, Chernobyl was interesting. So when we're talking containment, like Chris was saying, you're talking about a very thick concrete liner. Mm-hmm. Usually, there's a steel, um, yes. a steel. You can call it like a furnace, I guess. But it's a steel container that is lined with concrete, and then you have a big concrete building around that. So you've got mm-hmm. two barriers of concrete and a barrier of steel in order to contain the nuclear reactions. Chernobyl only had the basic container. It did not have a secondary container. So yeah. if there were a failure, then there you'd have much more uh, chance of nuclear fallout. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the Chernobyl incident happened, ironically, during a procedure where they were trying to test out a safety feature. Mm-hmm. Because what Chernobyl was going to ha- have was having some similar issues to the Japan uh, facility in that Chernobyl um, – they were worried about what would happen if pa- power were lost. Mm-hmm. If they lost power from the power grid and they could no longer pump water through their system. So they, uh, they had these diesel backups, but the diesel backups would, would not really kick in until about a minute after the initial power loss. Mm-hmm. And that minute is a long time for these nuclear uh, reactions to go unchecked, mm-hmm. right? With no water cooling them down. So one of the things they were looking at doing was using the turbine as it slowed down to generate enough electricity to keep the, the pumps running for that one minute before mm-hmm. the diesel backups could p- kick in. And they were running a test, and it was like the perfect set, again, a perfect set of situations going wrong for that test to fail. There was a power spike, and then while they were trying to react to the initial power spike, there was a second power spike, and that's when you had... Uh, another um, explosion and uh, release of steam and uh, nuclear steam. And then it, there was the terrible fallout that happened yes. in a huge radius around Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Belarus in particular was hit really, really hard yes. by that radiation. It was, uh, And there, there are levels of nuclear disaster. We give them a, a numeric uh, 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 assignment 
for how bad it is. And it goes from one to seven. Mm-hmm. Chernobyl was a seven. Three Mile Island, which happened in the United States in 1979, that was a five. Mm-hmm. And the Japan incident right now is uh, is listed at a six. Now, mm-hmm. of course, that can change over time yes. if things mm-hmm. get worse. Um, hopefully it will not by the time this not. is actually released. So, But yeah, Chernobyl, because Chernobyl was uh, was not as protected as it needed to be, that's why the, the it was it ended up being a seven. Like if it had had the right protections in place, it may still have been a terrible, terrible accident, but it may not have been as bad as it turned out to be. Three Mile Island was interesting in that uh, it was a combination of user error and mechanical failure. Mm-hmm. There was a, a valve that was open and then uh, the power to the valve was shut off, which normally would mean the valve would close. The right. valve would only open when powered. Mm-hmm. There's a mechanical failure. The uh, valve did not close. And because um, the indicator on the console said that there was no longer power going to that valve, all the operators assumed that the valve was closed. Mm-hmm. But their readings were showing that the pressure and temperature were off. And it, like The pressure and temperature of the core should not have been what it was. Well, the reason why the, there was a problem was because the water was boiling off and there was this open valve. And so there was an open what you know the pressure was not building the right way right but it took hours for them to figure out what the problem was actually there was a shift change and it was when someone from the new shift was looking at the problem that they figured it out and then by then the the scare had really hit now, fortunately 3 mile island wasn't as bad as it could have been yes. there was no there was only i think there was a partial meltdown which was scary mm-hmm. but it could have been so much worse if someone had not picked up on that mistake mm-hmm. Now, as far as Japan goes, uh, we talked about the boron uh, and the seawater. Well, dumping seawater into the reactor is pretty much a last step yes, uh, because the seawater is going to ruin that reactor. You're not going to be able to use it again. Um, and the boron is there to help absorb those neutrons, like Chris was saying. Mm-hmm. Yes, another, another one of the problems that they were mentioning on the news yesterday as of the day we were recording this is that um, they're, they are – Currently, this this will show you probably when we're recording this. Uh, they were talking about the pumps that are in place. They wanted to be able to restart them. They've mm-hmm. had trouble doing that, and they're going to have more trouble doing that now. Uh, they're hoping to, uh, again, as of the time we're recording this, restore electricity to the plant so that they can go ahead and shut the pumps back on. But for the reactors uh, in which they have introduced seawater, this is an issue because the seawater also clogs those pumps. Yeah. So it is going to be even more difficult for them to contain the situations in those damaged reactors uh, today than it would have been a few days ago when the, the problem was first getting out of hand. Yeah, the issue was just that if they did not introduce the seawater, there was, uh, there was um, an increased danger of a meltdown. Because, like we said, this temperature just keeps on going. It's not even with the control rods in place, uh, which the system did do. Um, it does not eliminate that heat. You have mm-hmm. to be able to circulate the coolant through there in mm-hmm. order to to maintain the temperature. And um, because there was no way to circulate the coolant, they had a choice: either they introduce the seawater and boron into the reactor core, or they take a chance on a meltdown. Yeah. And and clearly the. The second option is not one that anyone wants to take. Yeah, that that is not an option, really. Right. So there's a lot of concern, actually, uh, that this this uh, will really set Japan back quite a bit because they are very reliant on nuclear power, 
and that um, losing this facility, which it's quite possible that they will lose at least uh, more than half of the reactors in this facility. Yes. Um, that it will really impact their ability to create electricity. And uh, the the quake in general has really, um, I mean, it, it seems it seems weird to say this because there are so many more important tragedies that are connected to the the quake, but the quake itself could actually set back everything from uh, electronics to computers just because so much of it is manufactured in Japan and those manufacturing facilities were damaged in in the quake. That That's true. Um, even places that weren't uh, directly hit by the tsunami are still suffering problems. Um, and from what I understand, the majority of flash memory uh, used mm-hmm. in all kinds of electronic devices, cell phones, smartphones, tablets, uh, MP3 players, and all kinds of other things, uh, the majority of it comes from Japan. Uh, so this is likely to uh, to cause problems in the supply chain and disrupt um, electronics manufacturers the world over. And of course, you know those those people who who weren't directly hit probably would like to get back to work, but this is going to be difficult uh, for them. To be able to move on and 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 do things that they want to do again, yeah, uh, you know, even even people who weren't directly affected by, uh, you know, losing their homes and losing friends and loved ones, um, you know, this is this is difficult for for them as well. Yeah, it's a major catastrophe. It's all it's. I was going to say it's almost unimaginable to me, but no, I I think I have to say it's unimaginable. I I cannot comprehend the level of catastrophe this no. is. I mean, I see the pictures and I see the video. And I hear the testimonials, and it's all heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just there's – I can't grasp it. Mm-hmm. It's beyond my ability. Um, and, guys, I want to say this before we before we start wrapping up. We have some amazing articles on HowStuffWorks.com yes. mm-hmm. about nuclear reactors, about radiation, and about the Japanese crisis. There's uh, how nuclear power works, how Japan's nuclear crisis works, how radiation works – these articles are fantastic. I read through all of them in prep for this uh, this podcast, and the writing on these are amazing. I mean, you, you, the Marshall Brain and Robert Lamb and uh, uh, and and Deborah Rontz all did fantastic jobs, and my hat is off to them because they they took a very complex, dense subject and they broke it down in a really understandable way. So if you want to learn more, I highly recommend you check them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there are so many other types of uh nuclear uh energy too that we haven't touched on. We right. didn't talk anything about uh some of the other new technologies that people are trying out now. Um one of them being the pebble bed reactor that right. they're starting to right. to roll out in China, which from what I understand may be to some degree safer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's less chance of something like a meltdown occurring because it uses a different method of nuclear reaction. And that might be – maybe we can look at that again when, when this uh, these issues aren't so fresh and we can, uh, uh, you know, look at some of those. And I'm also interested in uh, – personally in something that I read about in Wired um, a couple of years ago now or maybe about a year and a half ago, uh, thorium, using thorium, mm-hmm. uh, which is not nearly as radioactive as uranium. Right. Of course, it will carry – for some people, probably for a lot of people, the stigma of being labeled nuclear energy. Yeah. But from what I understand, you can hold the piece of thorium in your hand and you should not suffer any ill effects because it's not the same kind of 
it's not as radioactive as, as uranium or plutonium. Right. And can be used on a smaller scale with, uh, uh, you know, the possibility. I've, like I said, I'm only reading this, but it doesn't look like there's nearly the possibility of, uh, uh, the kind of disaster that we're talking about here. So there might be other kinds of technologies that we'll use in the future that can still harness the power of the atom without being so dangerous yeah. in the event of a, uh, an active, you know, a nature event like this. And I imagine that this, this disaster will definitely make countries around the world rethink their, their approach to nuclear power. Well, that's already that's already happening. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, uh, President Obama has ordered um, a uh, a look at the, all the nuclear reactors currently in service to to just as a checkup to see how they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany, I think, has taken all of theirs offline um, with the idea that they will evaluate their safety. Right. Uh, there were bills in many countries uh, or laws already passed to extend the life of aging nuclear reactors that, from what I understand, are being rescinded one by one as yeah. people are rethinking the possibility that older reactors – and this the, – the reactor in Japan was older too. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, as, as we complain about very often, technology changes very quickly and it's hard for us to keep track of. It's also changing in the nuclear industry as well and there are new safe, safety measures that might be implemented in a, in a new reactor that wouldn't have been implemented in the 1970s and 80s. It's just the question of will it be politically feasible to implement nuclear power? Because uh, it's one thing to to tell people that safety measures have improved and that uh, that we've learned lessons from these events that we can um, we can implement in the future, uh, but. There's, it's such an emotional issue, mm-hmm. and uh, it has it does have problems. I mean, the the nuclear waste is still a very very, very big serious, problem, serious problem, and uh, there's not an easy solution to that. And as long as those still exist, I think we're going to see increased resistance to implementation of nuclear power. Which uh, uh, I mean, that's going to be very frustrating for some people. Although you have to admit that um, that the We've seen examples of things going wrong, and sometimes it's because people did not react the right way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just that the perfect set of circumstances hit in order for something to go terribly wrong. And, you know, there there is the argument you could make that uh, the likelihood of that happening is low, but there's also the argument of any likelihood is too much, mm-hmm. Right. So it'll be interesting to see where the the future of nuclear power goes. It'll be interesting for me to see if uh, the 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 projects that are trying to make breakthroughs in fusion power suffer as a result, because that is mm-hmm. another form of nuclear energy. Yes, and uh, it's a different form of nuclear energy. It's not the same as fission at all. But it could very well be that just because it has that association, that these programs could start to lose funding. So we'll have to keep our eyes open, see what happens. Uh, our thoughts go out to J- everyone in Japan and mm-hmm. all those who are affected by this disaster. Absolutely. And it's absolutely a, a, a tragic event, and uh, and we really feel for you guys. Um, if you guys want to talk to us about nuclear power, if you have your own thoughts you would like to share, please do so. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter and Facebook. That handle is techstuffhsw. Or you can write us an email. That email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. 
The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.